can I ask you some questions? Yes. That have nothing to do with the podcast. Yeah. But since you mentioned not remembering your dream, yeah. Um, I'm taking polls with people I know. Uh-huh. Um, do you dream in color? I did this time. Yeah. So I, I think it, I do usually. Okay. Yeah. Do you? No, hardly ever. You dream in black and white? It's not black and white. It's like a sepia. It's sort of like a washed out, like like a really, really washed out sort of sepia. Weird. So the dream sequence of your, in your, this, the movie of your life, they're, they're all like. They're all not yeah. in color. Yeah. I don't they're know. Stylized. I don't know why. I mean, it's not like it. <laughs> It's not like an Instagram filter, but like, that's kind of what I was picturing, (laughs) which almost actually, I guess you could imagine that and it makes it better than the reality, which is just Amaro. Right. There you go. I think I like Kelvin on this dream. (laughs) Are you ready? Yeah. Honeymoon in Vegas. Um, Were your hosts the Flying Elvises? Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe it's kind of an introduction before we get into the movie. Um, I was, as I do every week, reading uh, the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, The Man Behind Captain Corelli by Ian Markham Smith and Liz Hodgson. How many pages are you in right now? Um, about 120. Okay. I uh, I realize... Oh, okay, so there, there's a chapter before the chapter on... Uh, honeymoon in Vegas, uh, entitled doting dad, rambling Romeo, which is about Nick's the, the, what was going on in Nick Cage's life at this point in time. Uh, mostly that he, uh, had a kid Weston Cage. So I, according to this book, this marks like a big change in, in his life. What does he say? He says, I've slowed down. I'm a worry wart now. It brings a new kind of emotion, a depth that wasn't there before. I've always, I'm always aware that what I do could affect my son. Being a father has had more of an impact on my life than anything else before or since. There's been a lot of press about how strange and bizarre I am. I used to feel great about being described as having strange and bizarre tastes. I tried to cultivate that image for a long time, but then I became a father and that changed my outlook on everything. I think the most positive thing a person can do is have children. It made me look at my life in a completely new perspective. It humbled me quite a bit. You might even say it tamed me because why would I want my son to think that his father is a maniac? My son, Weston, is the most important thing in the world to me. He's three now, and every time I make a wish on a birthday cake or whatever, it's always about him. I just wish everything for my son. There's nothing more important than that. Not my career, not anything. This chapter goes on and on about that. Like he, there's, It quotes him like five times saying essentially the same thing. I think that really, this idea of, of him um, settling down and being responsible um, plays into maybe the, the movies that we're about to see him take part in the kind of the career, the career moves that he starts to make. Um, also playing in is the fact that he, uh, was going broke again, which he (laughs) again. So he already has gone broke once at this point, or is he just kind of perpetually going broke? Um, it, it says, I mean, he, he says like essentially like, Let's see where so he, he basically never, even from the beginning, he never learned how to manage his money. Uh, no, 
that I mean, that's like it's not like it was a problem that got increasingly worse as time went on. It was just always from the beginning he was really bad at it. He started being in movies when he was like nineteen, and so I assume he was like living with his parents or something, and then he immediately was like you know, living on his own in fucking like on Hollywood Boulevard, like raking in money. And, uh, he never had to learn. Yeah. Here's another quote. Uh, he, he says, I don't look at my bills. I try not to worry or think about money. I just keep spending until I get a phone call from my business manager telling me to stop. Even then I have difficulty doing that. I like to purchase things and not worry about it. Who doesn't? <laughs> I find that money problems are too big a headache for me to think about. So I wait until the phone call comes. It must be great to have a lot of money because then you don't have to worry about money. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest perk about having money. I think you can literally pay someone, his business manager, you can literally pay, pay someone, someone to worry, to about, worry money. about the money. Yeah. And just, just call you and, uh, and, and tell hey, you stop. Yeah. <laughs> Time to stop now. And then even then he maybe won't. And all he's got to do is star in a million subpar uh, action flicks. <laughs> Some other just tidbits from his personal life. Uh, yeah, he was, he was with Christina Fulton and uh, they had a kid and then they didn't stay together for too long. Like they broke up and then we're kind of like co-parent like back and forth. And he was then involved with uh, a woman named Kristen Zhang who uh, he was a swimsuit model who he was on again and off again with. And eventually he broke up with her only to have her run into the arms of Leonardo DiCaprio right at the, at the height of his like Titanic fame. Let's see uh, to quote the book. Um, Nick's libido. This is after he broke up with Christina Fulton. It says Nick's libido appeared to come back with a vengeance Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss had just been arrested for supplying high-class prostitutes to the rich and famous, and the film industry was full of rumors about the names found in her little black book. Globe magazine identified one of the celebrities as, quote, hot shots hunk Charlie Sheen, <laughs> who reportedly ordered up to 10 girls at a time to party with acting pals Nicolas Cage and Sean Penn. Going to Charlie's parties? This is, this is back when uh, Charlie Sheen was described as hot shots hunk. <laughs> wow, did you know that he parties with prostitutes? <laughs> wow, what, no what a way. shock. Never would have figured that one out. Yeah, that, that's just something that we all now take for granted. Yeah, it's just of course. In like the post-Tiger Blood world, yeah. <laughs> we're all just like, oh yeah, like obviously. But that was a, that was a hot scoop back then. Yeah, right. But uh, Nick was on the the uh, the periphery, at least, of there. There's another quote, uh, him talking about dating Kristen Zhang. And, and he was like 20, he was like 30 at the time, and she was 20. And uh, he says, I've been with my girlfriend for two years. She's 20 and I'm 30. We were with Crispin Glover the other day. He's 32. And she said to us, Generation X is not for you. And it really bothered Crispin. He said... What does that mean? Generation X is not for me. If anything, I'm a progenitor of Generation X. And what is Generation X anyway? I don't know. I can't put things into compartments like that, but I know why it made him a little upset and it kind of bothered me too. It's about coming to terms with being 30 and not being a part of the youth culture anymore. Although the fact of the matter is we still have tremendous years ahead of us. So uh, I guess I just highlighted that because he's hanging out with Chris Clever, and uh, they're coming to terms with being old. Um, oh, also he got, 
<laughs> Kristen Zhang's uh, ex-boyfriend was uh, Julian Lennon, who uh, who took a swing at <laughs> tried to punch Nick Cage at some Hollywood club. And uh, at first he thought it was a joke, and then he realized the younger man really was looking for a fight and became furious. Still, he made an effort to control his temper. He said, uh, I started to get up and he walked away. He's a kid, basically. I felt bad for him, actually. I know if I do fight, I fight to kill. My motto has always been maximum violence immediately. That's capitalized. That means pushing the nose into the face or whatever you've got to do. So I didn't want to get into a fight. Maximum violence immediately. Yeah. MVI. Wow. MVI. Dude, dude, let's tattoos. Dude, tattoos. Tattoos. That was, it was (laughs) in my mind too. We'll put it on the Instagram. Maximum violence immediately. Uh, the last thing I highlighted was his, with him settling down and kind of settling down, but then also, I don't know, fucking prostitutes with Charlie Sheen or whatever. He talks about, uh, not letting Weston watch his movies. This interest. I just thought this quote was interesting. He says, I have friends who are children of actors who have said, I saw my father get shot off a horse when I was five. And I remember really being really upset and thinking daddy's dead. So I I don't want to take any chances. I'll wait till he's a little older to show him that. Um, this is just a weird thing. A surreal thing to think about seeing your father die on screen. (laughs) But then assuming that he actually died. Yeah. You know, right. That's terrifying. Or, or, Or yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, another, this is, this really dates, uh, this, you know, this is the early or early to mid nineties here, but, uh, um, this, perhaps it be, it was because of his self-proclaimed new maturity that he wrote to playboy magazine protesting that they had used unauthorized nude pictures of actress Uma Thurman taken when she was on holiday in the Caribbean. He said he was delighted by his recent playboy interview with David chef, but added it is therefore extremely upsetting to me that Playboy chose to run unauthorized photos of Uma Thurman. Your pictorials have always been prevented with quality and taste. As you stated in the layout, you are not fans of this type of photography, which leads me to wonder why the magazine chose to so be so blatantly hypocritical. And to which Playboy responded, here's our thinking about Uma. <laughs> here's our thinking about Uma. When someone so celebrated and camera worthy puts herself on display in public, it's disingenuous for her to be shocked that there were interested photographers in place. Didn't she give up her privacy when she chose a public beach at St. Bart's instead of a zillion cozier spots that were available to her? So I uh, don't know. I just think that's a weird time capsule of, uh, back, I guess before the internet and before paparazzi culture had, was so like, insane well and especially now like if you don't leak nudes then you're not worth anything right yeah yeah i mean just the the fact that it was so controversial back then yeah and and um and and just that discussion of like it, well it's her fault for being naked out in public because of course photographers are going to be there uh, well just of course a, not but also but, it happens yeah so do you ha- do you take that into account yeah and and then and, and that there's like this discussion happening in the press uh between people like nicholas cage <coughs> writing the playboy about how they usually conduct themselves with such decorum <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> clutching right? at his pearls oh oh god remember that <laughs> I feel like in those instances, you can just like spit firebirds back in his face and his, yeah. just, and his argument just becomes moot about anything. <laughs> I know. Like, yeah, dude. But like integrity, you did fire. You did fire dog. 
Also, like, y- y- <laughs> you've had rape scenes in your last five movies. Like, dude, there was no rape scene in this one. I, I know. I noticed that we, actually. I wrote it down. We broke the streak. Yeah, uh, let's get into it. Let's sure. get into I like, okay, in Vegas. We've spent um, 20 minutes not talking about the movie. Uh, yeah, thanks for indulging me. I just yeah, wanted no, to. Uh, it's always interesting when you have. Scene. Right. What context is important. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, he's a, he's a dad. He's a doting dad and a rambling Romeo now. And, uh, and he needs money <laughs> to enter Honeymoon in Vegas. Uh, I'd never seen this before. Have you seen it? No, I actually didn't even know that it existed yeah. before this podcast. So, uh, okay. So what was your, what's your take? What's, uh, how, what did you think of Honeymoon in Vegas? I never, which I think is going to be the case with a number of movies that I see, but I never would have seen this movie yeah. if it were not for the podcast. Right. But I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't a great movie. Definitely not. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, maybe anyone. Yeah. Right. But you know, I, I thought that it at least, you know, it kept my interest and it was like pretty entertaining. Yeah. And, and, and I think it was, I think some of the, I think some of the plot devices were actually, actually kind of like original and, and interesting, like, like together as a whole, it's pretty blah. Yeah. But I think if you kind of break down certain aspects of it, you can be like, oh, I, I, I understand why it got diluted. Right. But I think initially it was like some stuff was there. Well, I, it was written by Andrew, written and directed by Andrew Bergman. Um, and Andrew Bergman, who also, this is the start of like uh, Nick Cage later did a movie that we're going to watch in a couple of installments called uh, It Could Happen to You with him. So I guess this was a positive enough experience for that. But he co-wrote Blazing Saddles with uh, Mel Brooks. He wrote Fletch and um, <laughs> The Scout, a movie called The In-Laws that I don't know anything about, but Criterion put it out. So that's something. He, he So it's like a French film from the 40s? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, it's, I think it's a comedy from the seventies, <laughs> but, uh, maybe, I don't know. He could be like a, a time hopping, um, comedy writer. He also wrote, Oh God, you devil with George Burns. So, and he later directed the freshman and striptease, which striptease. Yeah. Oh wow. Just ve- forgot seems, about that movie. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it sort of uh, exists in the same cinematic, uh, sphere as as this which is kind of like it's a family movie uh in a sense that like i don't know there's a bunch of good uh, i guess what i'm getting at is there's a bunch of good ideas in this movie but it's the structure of it is just kind of ramshackle and and weird and the way that it flows is weird and and just like i mean the whole thing hinges. I, so, okay. I, it's been, I watched this like a week ago, so it's a little fuzzy. It starts with him. His mother is on her deathbed. Right. And right. She, and she, <laughs> she, her like dying wish to him is that he doesn't get married. Yeah. And her rationale being no one will love you as much as I have. Yeah. So you're just going to be disappointed with anyone you marry. Fucked up. Not only fucked up, but like, it's so weirdly, it's so weirdly specific. Yeah. It has to be, this had to have been Andrew Bergman's way of like exercising some 
issue he had with his mom. Yeah, well, I mean, it says something that that he thought that that was a relatable like human that 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 was a not only relatable but right off the bat. There's no, there's almost no introduction. The movie opens in a hospital and Nicolas Cage is visiting his His, mom, his mom, his dying mom, and that's like the first bit of dialogue that's exchanged is that. Yeah. So there's no, there's nothing to warm you up for it. And all we get to know throughout the movie about his mom, I mean, it's yeah, like part of it. Okay. Part of it is like, that's fucking weird. And what's Andrew Bergman's deal. And then also like what a just naked plot device, you know, it's just so like just the, the dying wish to do or not do something ridiculous. This is just like such like a, a blatant, uh, just like set the wheels in motion. But Nick cage in that moment, he's like, He's like, wait, no, that's too much to ask, mom. And then fast forward like five years or something. And he's like, nope, marriage is a lie. Like it sucks. Like and I'm he never going to do he, it. He just picked up on it so quickly. And the other crazy thing too is that they, they make it so that you don't question it because what he does for a living is literally uh, follow around cheating spouses. He's a private eye. He's a private eye that like specializes in sure. catching people cheating. Right. So... Which, another weird side thing about that whole thing is, yeah, so it cuts directly from the mom on the deathbed to him being a, a private like, eye, like a yeah. private eye. And then there's a voiceover of him, is like, there? introducing his his job and, like, his life. Oh. So it gives it a weird, like, I almost thought <laughs> this movie was going to take a turn into, like, a spoof of, like, a noir or something. Yeah. Because all of a sudden he's a private eye and there's a very matter-of-fact upfront voiceover explaining everything that's sure. going on. Well, so it, I was like, what is yeah. this, like, what is this tone, what is this supposed to be now? Is it supposed to be, like, a send-up of... Of like a, a, a film noir, I didn't get it. Right. Well, and but then and it doesn't follow through on that. No, it abandons that. I mean, it's like a. I mean, he literally has like the office in like the dingy building with like the uh, frosted glass window, and you know he's like following. He's wearing like a tie and slacks. Fake, yeah, exactly. And then like on the job in like a fake mustache, like hiding behind newspapers and shit. Like it's. <laughs> but you're yeah, you're right. Like that again is just another. It, it's. The the plot is so full of just these like, yeah, it's just devices and ideas that don't necessarily sit well together or or aren't like fleshed out into like a believable um, story of about real people. I mean, the I want to get to it later, but I mean, the most blatant of those is the fact that his fiance uh, kind of almost almost marries James Caan. Here's the thing. Until that last, or it's not the last one, actually. It's far from it. But until that scene, until that scene where he lies to her and tells her that Nick Cage actually right. put up less, like, like bet her against less money than he did. Yeah. Until he blatantly lies about that, she actually would, the correct choice for her yeah. is... James James Con's character with James Con. No, think about it because he actually he actually is in love with her. Right. I mean, you could say for he's in love more with the idea of her than her herself. But regardless, yes. he's going to treat her like a princess. True. He's filthy fucking rich. True. Right. And he, he's got a nice family. Yeah, he's got a really nice family, and um, and he's ready to like provide for her and really uh. Like he actually, it doesn't start out this way, but then he actually gets to know her and like falls in love with her yeah. as a person. And she kind of falls in love with him. Right. 
but and me so but we meanwhile Nicolas Cage is this loser that can't get it together. <laughs> he's a he's the ultimate like commitment phobe. Yep. And he basically is just like the way he proposes to her is the shittiest proposal ever. He's like, oh, oh babe, I just love you. Like, let's just go to Vegas and get married tomorrow. True. It's like, like, so he clearly, clearly James Caan, like the, no, no pun intended, but the, but the deck is stacked against Nicolas Cage in this situation, like across yeah. the board. Yeah. If you take out the, the fact that James Caan manipulated the situation, but well, let's, all right, let's get there. Um, cause I, I, I want to keep going through that. So, so yeah, he's like a commitment phobe. All we know, he, we, his mom fucked him up and he keeps dreaming about her vacuuming naked. And <laughs> it's a recurring. It, it wasn't sexual. It was about cleanliness. <laughs> right. And then, but he breaks down and, and uh, he's going to marry her, but he wants to gamble first. So they, they go to Vegas and before he wants to tie the Does knot. Does he want to gamble or is he just trying to keep like putting stalling. off the marriage? Right, and James Caan, meanwhile, has seen um, seen Sarah Jessica Parker and w- is like, she looks and acts seemingly exactly like my dead wife. So I, I wrote this down. Uh, villain's motivation, sunbathing. <laughs> because literally his wife, his, his wife died of skin cancer because, because oh, she was spending too much time by the pool. Oh yeah. Right. I yeah. think we're, that's what we're led to assume. And yeah. I remember when he's talking to his like goon crony guy, uh, and, Mr. Like, Sandwich like, is his name. Mr. Sandwich. <laughs> and he goes like, Oh, I shouldn't. Or he's like, Oh, I should have brought her inside every once in a while. Or he, he says some <laughs> weird thing like that. <laughs> which which leads you to believe that he's that he feels guilty she got skin cancer simply because he just let her like sunbathe too much as as if she's like some like child or like something that he needs to be like <laughs> you know i left her outside and and forgot to bring her in like it's like leaving the food out of the fridge <laughs> spoiled my wife so james con is a filthy rich widower and uh, so he invites Nick Cage to a fixed game of poker with a bunch of people who it's never, I, I don't know, some weird rogues gallery of like Las Vegas archetypes, like the old man in the Hawaiian shirt with like enormous like glasses and uh, the Vietnamese Elvis, Vietnamese Elvis, <laughs> who, who who's like singing like I'm out, honey. That's too much for me. So Nick Cage loses what sixty five hundred thousand sixty five thousand dollars thousand dollars, and instead of paying him back, uh, James Con offers uh, that he, as long as he just gives him a weekend with Nick Cage's fiance, it'll all be forgiven, and uh, whisks her away to Hawaii, and then wackiness ensues. A lot of wackiness. A lot of Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. A lot of Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle as as the as the crazy chief. Chief. That was a that was a bizarre cameo. It was really I weird. Did, I did not see that coming at all. And he's talking in like pigeon Hawaiian. Right. Like, yeah. It it's was, almost it almost reminded me of like a a, a cartoon send up of 
when Marlon Brando goes native in Apocalypse Now, <laughs> but except like on the island of Hawaii instead yeah. of like during the Vietnam War. So it's not like dark. He right, just like right, grows but his just, hair out. Yeah. And just like, he's just like a fat dude that like went kind of crazy <laughs> in the jungle and he's just living in like a, in like a thatched hut. <laughs> yeah. And poor Pat Morita. I, I was looking at his IMDb. And besides Karate Kid, it, it, it's pretty dire. Dude is still acting, by the way. Good um, for him. St- and but I mean, like, he's in like movies, like some sort of like National Lampoon type movie, playing like Mr. Miyami. Like it's like shit like that. It, it's it seems it seems. Uh, I guess I, I shouldn't pity him. That's that's a fine life. But uh, seeing him in like what like a backwards hat and like. Uh, as like a corrupt taxi driver or whatever he was in this um was was weird um ben stein makes a yeah, cameo there we go as as ben stein uh someone should do a, a stein cast yeah ending with that like anti-evolution uh <laughs> documentary <laughs> I forgot that, about that. <laughs> that made. what was the deal with that um it's just that he's, was it in earnest yeah, he's like a he's a like staunch conservative. But he's like anti-evolution though. Yeah, he think he just thinks that the you know, the science <laughs> isn't in the there's there's people who have a vested interest in lying to us about evolution. Yeah, but you could take you can always take that to its logical conclusion that everything is made up. True. And if you don't see it or experience it with your own senses, then it's not real. Which is like cool. So then, like space isn't a thing, you know. Like like like. <laughs> right. then, okay, then what happens on the other side of the sky? Yeah, because no. only like you know a hundred people have ever seen it. So like, how can you trust them? Yeah, exactly. Can you trust all those scientists? They probably just want the money to build their their rockets for their own, you know, uh, perverse whatever. They they just want they just love to watch taxpayer money burn or whatever his idea is. It's you know that this whole thing with Ben Stein. I mean I know this is like a tangent, but it's just it's weird because growing up he when Ben Stein's money was on TV and the the idea being that Ben Stein is so smart that people are like going up against him and can they like outsmart him and do they know more than I mean what wasn't that kind of the from what I remember, yeah, I, mean, it, I didn't watch much of it, but that seemed to have been the idea. That's what I internalized as a kid is that Ben Stein is some like guy with a boring voice who's really smart. And um, so the fact that he actually thinks that dinosaurs didn't exist or whatever is um, is a weird pill to swallow. But anyway, he's here. And Sarah Jessica Parker. Looking good. She, but she looks hot in this movie. She's, she's hot. Nick Cage, not hot in this movie. He looks like he's fucking 40 years old. It's crazy how much of a disparity there is between, I mean, he didn't look hot in Zandali, but no. actually he, he at least he was looked, naked. And yeah, so he looked, he looked like young. Right. So like, like but in this one, he just looks like a flabby middle-aged dude. Like, it's no good. Why, I don't know I, what happened. I mean, yeah, we're talking like wild at heart. He like, he, it's like he 
burned really bright right before he like he went out. He maybe it's being a father. Maybe that's just what happens when you become a father is you kind of just let yourself go. I mean, no, none of the men are being helped by their outfits in this movie. Like the, the, the <laughs> dude, men- I mean, like I know that it's time period appropriate, but seriously, I wish I'd taken some screenshots of specific outfits so yeah. I could reference them. But sometimes Nick Cage is dressed like Kramer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> With like the really high pants. Yes. And like the weird, uh, like, like trippy, like patterned button up collar, yeah. sh- like short sleeve shirts. It's really weird. I mean, James Conn is dressed like, I mean, fitting. And James Conn looks like he's dressed like the villain in like a Richie Rich yeah. sequel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like early nineties, like bad old rich man. Yeah. And and then he's got like pinky rings and shit. Yeah, and like gold <laughs> chains and uh, <laughs> like open open white button up shirts, just like with his tan old man chest uh, bared to the world. And then Mister Sandwich was wearing a lot of very flashy windbreakers. I noticed, like I kind of like want the windbreakers that he was wearing. Boy. There were there was at least two or three that were really solid. I was like, that's something that I would see. Um, a teenager wear nowadays is like one of yes. those windbreakers. Yeah, they they were pretty on point. Elvis was, I guess, the biggest joke of this movie. I mean, it, it literally it seems like James Con actually said that he didn't know that Elvis impersonators were a thing before this. I don't he believe did this that. Well, I don't believe that at all. How do you not know that? Well, it makes me think that maybe in the early nineties, maybe that wasn't common knowledge that that no, was no like, there have been elvis impersonators since, since elvis. elvis died yeah since before elvis died probably yeah but this movie to a lesser extent but this movie does treat elvis impersonators like just an inherently funny thing that is just a bottomless well of laughs because they like, are just the fact they of are the, the the truth of the matter is you cannot have a movie set in vegas and without without featuring Elvis impersonators in some capacity. It's just not possible. Okay. You yeah, can't do I'll, it. I'll, t- I'll take that. You can't do it. And in fact, I'm going to go so far as to say, if you do do it, why the you fuck are up. you even setting your movie in yeah. Vegas to begin with? Yeah. Go to Atlantic city. It could be city. anywhere else. <laughs> anyway, that's I'm, I'm standing right. firm on that position. Yeah. I'll, that, I'll, that, I'll back you up. But, um, that being said, I think it is interesting the way that they treated the Elvis, the idea of the Elvis impersonator as almost like a main character in the film. Yeah. It wasn't any specific Elvis impersonator and it wasn't even like Elvis himself as an idea. It was more specifically the idea of like Elvis impersonators as a character in the movie. And they were all treated as some sort of amorphous, like hive mind. Yeah. Uh, You know what I mean? There's all these Elvis impersonators that all just kind of think and do the same things. Right. Just wandering around in the background of shots being like, Oh, I was just going to do this, honey. And, and you see all different people of there. There's like, Ty Elvis impersonators, young Bruno Mars plays an Elvis impersonator. Um, yeah, they're, they're everywhere. And of course the flying Elvises that in, in the climax, uh, Nick Cage hitches a ride on an airplane full of skydiving Elvis impersonators, which, okay, you can't, you, everything about this, this is the classic like version of like an idea that he was like, this is funny. 
and the setup is so half-assed. He just runs onto the tarmac and he's like, Hey, like, are you guys going to Vegas or something? And, and they're like, yes, come on, stranger. We're going to jump out of a plane and you're going to do it too. Like you, you don't, you just don't do that. But also if you, why do you have to ask? Like you run up to a plane full of Elvis impersonators. <laughs> are they going to be going anywhere else? True. Maybe. I don't know. Where? Well, I, I've never. If there was, if there was ten to fifteen Elvis impersonators traveling in a pack, <laughs> where do you think they would go other than Vegas? Here's what I'll say: I, I would hope that they're going wherever I'm going. I, I want to live in the world where uh, Elvis impersonators skydive down at any moment. But you're right. They, they were definitely going to Vegas. Here's the thing is, I think we need to make it more acceptable for Elvis impersonators to come out of the closet in like general society. Like, I don't know why they need to be relegated to like special like occasions and conventions in Las Vegas. Sure. I think if you want to be an Elvis impersonator, it shouldn't be like, go, go get coffee and your barista is an Elvis impersonator. Oh, right. You know what I you, mean? Do you think there's, there's like some shame? Uh, that, I like, don't know keeping... if it's shame. I just think it's, it's not, it's, I just think that it's, unacceptable you know i mean it is like a form of of drag i guess um that like i mean you're yeah yeah yeah, i i if people want to be elvis if if you want to be an elvis impersonator just do it man just be elvis elvis is a cultural symbol that belongs to everyone now and we we can all be elvis to uh, a little to some extent so if you want if the amount of Elvis that you feel is in you um, justifies putting on like a rhinestone jumpsuit and talking um, in his voice and, uh, you know, singing gospel songs at Denny's or whatever Elvis would do, then, then do it, man. Live your truth. Yeah. I feel like in that, in that respect to, to become more of a, more of a symbol yeah, I mean, it's almost as though like Elvis died for our sins. He, oh, he did collectively, so that we could use the idea of Elvis as as a way, you know, as like almost like a mythology. Yeah, yeah, he he did, or was he killed for our sins? I don't know, man. Don't believe anything. Anyone has a vested interest in lying to you about anything. Look, Elvis is probably still alive. Elvis is alive. Dinosaurs didn't exist. What if, what if Ben Stein, what if Ben Stein was an Elvis truther as well? <laughs> Maybe that's why he was in the movie. <laughs> I hope Ben Stein believes every uh, crack. I hope he's like a flat earther. I, I <laughs> he's he also believes in the um what's the thing the 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 kirk cameron thing where everyone just like gets disappeared oh uh the rapture yeah yeah, yeah. he also he also is like a staunch believer in the rapture <laughs> well when jesus comes back he will push all of the non-believers off the edge of the flat earth who he will beat the non-believers with a fake dinosaur bone and we will ascend into heaven. That's my favorite part of anti-evolutionists is that they're just like, oh, the dinosaur bones are fake to test your faith. Yeah, it's a test. <laughs> God is just setting like, or the devil. It's probably the devil, right? 
it doesn't either way that i mean i, I don't think for the uh, purposes of this argument it really makes a difference is it like is it like a the equivalent of like god shaking your hand with a joy buzzer or something <laughs> Dude, that's the thing. Everyone's saying that God is trying to like test our faith and putting all these obstacles in our way. But what if he just has a really like fucked up sense of humor and he's just pranking the shit out of humanity? I make, I made people and I, what if I just put these crazy bones everywhere? What are they going to make of that? That's your religion. That's, that's Ben Stein's religion. All right. That said the. (laughs) i'm like looking at my notes like trying to find a graceful like uh entry back into the movie but i don't have one this movie was made before indecent proposal which was interesting to me because it is essentially an indecent proposal um but its tone is weirder and more family appropriate and okay now i i do really want to dig into this because like Oh, James Kahn is we, we, he's introduced as like a bad he's a bad guy we one of the first things we see him do is like walk up to one of the guys in the hotel who runs the hotel and he he's like I want this room in the hotel he's like I'm sorry like the ambassador of Taiwan is in there or whatever and he grabs the guy's balls really hard and like looks at him he's like you know like do you know who I am <laughs> and uh, so that's that's our first sense of who James Kahn is but I think arguably the script generates more empathy for him than any other character. (laughs) Like he really doesn't seem like the thing is he starts off being a reprehensible dick. Yeah. He ends the movie being like a sociopathic narcissist, but for a chunk of the film (laughs) right in the middle, you're like, it's going back to what I was saying before. Wow. This guy actually is the, is would make her really happy. Yeah. He seems like a good guy. Right. Seems like a good husband. Um, yeah, he's his son and his son and his son's family are completely normal. Yeah. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop with them because I thought maybe the son was going to be in on the plan to like hold Nick cage hostage or something. But, but all that happened was he just Nick cage pulls up to his house in the stolen taxi. (laughs) And then they're like, Oh yeah, he lives down that way. Are you friends with my dad? Like he just like legitimately is just like a nice helpful guy. guy. Yeah. And, and it, it's so weird in a movie where the main characters that Nick cage and Sarah Jessica Parker, like, all of their motivations seem to be ruled completely by what the the script and story just demands of them like it, it's you know they're they're pretty or at least nick cage is, is a pretty one-dimensional character um it, and so the fact that james Conn is is very three-dimensional and then it's to the to the extent that he has characters coming on who serve no gag purpose or anything like it's not it's not funny that he has a nice family it doesn't serve the plot in any way it's just a fact he 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 has like a beautiful granddaughter that sarah jessica parker like plays with like just he he just is um he must have done something right based on that i really wanted the movie to go a different direction i almost i for a second i almost tricked myself into believing that the movie would end with her marrying James Caan and then Nicolas Cage learning his lesson that way. Yeah. You know, like, like literally learning your lesson the hardest way possible. Yeah. You know? Sure. If you would just marry the woman you were in love with, like she kept asking you to. Yeah. Then 
But no, dude, you had to wait, and then you waited so long that you gambled it away. Yeah, you literally gambled her away, and uh, then you ran around, jumped out of a plane. I, I really, I was really confused about the timeline, because they, they go to Las Vegas, he gambles her away, and then they, James Conn is like, oh, we're going to Hawaii. And he's like, that's not it. They're like, that's not in the deal. And he's like, well, I said for the weekend, I didn't say where And they take off. And then Nick Cage is back in New York doing detective work. <laughs> detective work <laughs> or whatever the fuck that um, side note. There's a running gag of um, this guy who his client who believes that his wife is cheating on him with Mike Tyson. Um, and apparently in the original script, there was going to be a payoff to that where Nick Cage was in Las Vegas and he saw Mike Tyson with the guy's wife. But in between, like as they were like getting ready to film it, uh, Mike Tyson's rape allegations came out. So uh, that that next that I don't know why they still kept like kind of the setup for that joke in like why did they didn't I feel just, like they could have just plugged in another celebrity anybody like Wayne Newton or someone I'm yeah, trying to think of someone associated with Vegas there's like, no reason it has to be Mike Tyson it could have been anyone yeah but um anyway I I thought that was interesting and makes sense because that really does feel like a joke without a punchline but uh yeah he's back in New York doing detective work for an indeterminate amount of time like like how long is Sarah Jessica Parker in Hawaii with James Caan? It doesn't seem like a weekend. It seems like many days. See, yeah, it seems like at least a week. And and then Nick Cage gets like sidelined. He goes to Hawaii to try and find her. And Pat Morita is like driving him around to Peter Boyle's house and, and doing what I mean. It's just the horror. <laughs> Except like spoken in like fake white guy Hawaiian. How do you say the horror? In, I don't in know. Hawaiian? I'm trying. I feel like it's, if I try, it's going to be just as offensive. So what do you think Sarah Jessica Parker's deal is? Because as nice as James Conn's character is and like, yeah, he, he, the movie stacks the deck in his favor, bizarrely in, in any kind of like uh, with any emotional stakes, but he is also like, he's a total Goomba and he totally like, uh, he still bought her like a piece of property in a gambling and, but she gets over, she, it's like they have a nice dinner and she's over it. She's like, okay. Like, I think her motivation, well, let me preface this with saying, I think her, I think her character is literally just there as a plot device. Okay. Yeah. Right. I think that she is treated by the screenwriter much like she's treated by James Caan as just something, you know, just something to, to, to use, um, to get like the two, you know, right. To get the plot. Moving. Yes. A short answer. Um, yes, but, but I think in that context, right. her actual character's motivation in the film from what I can glean is literally 
just to get married to someone. And it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like she doesn't care who it is. TikTok. <laughs> I mean, she basically she's like, I need to have a family. So I'm just going to find the guy that wants to do that with me as soon as possible. Right. And, and okay. So then it like taking that then as that's her motivation. That's what she's looking for. Like you were saying, she kind of fucking lucked out. Cause yeah. she, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Just live in Hawaii with James Conn and his beautiful family. What what is Nick Cage gonna offer you? He's a fucking like private eye in New York who has who dreams about his mother naked all the time. Andrew Bergman, I kind of want to talk to him because I'm curious. <laughs> this movie seems to have been a way for him to work through multiple issues with not only his mother but also his idea of marriage in modern society. Yeah. He has some honest-to-God problems with trying to justify matrimony. Yeah. And it's coming out in all sorts of weird ways. It's almost like a, it's almost like a preteen boy wrote this. And, and, and yeah, I agree. And, and it doesn't end at a place where, like, he doesn't make any kind of case for marriage really like like i don't know what nick cage learns except just like i guess well the thing is no one learns anything the end of the movie comes and literally no one learns anything and um right because nick cage has already decided that he was going to marry her and then it's just like like, at the beginning of the movie they were like let's get married and then at the end of the movie they're like let's get married married." and and it's not like it's not like sarah jessica parker got taken away and and had was confronted with some sort of like i mean it seems like she should have done a lot of internal work and was confronted with like do what do i want in a husband and partner or whatever well there is that one scene where she's like on the on the, on the bluff cliff. like looking out over the ocean and yeah. he's trying to call her name but right. she can't hear it over the surf right that i guess she was reflecting but yeah but like i mean I, she I was she was staring out into the darkness you know like 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 looking wistfully ahead of herself so i guess we're led like, to believe that she's <laughs> like being introspective <laughs> much like uh zandali was yes um when uh judge reinhold came up behind her and said like you're you're here but you're so far away or something it's just it's just something that uh men cause women to do just stare into the middle distance and um i guess feel things (laughs) there's no real emotional arc i feel like that they the characters make in any sort of like deep way like she Uh, literally what changes for her is location and who she's with and then it's revealed that he lied about the thing and that's it it's not like her she's just like oh you're bad now and um i i want nick cage and then he literally drops out of the sky in front of her and it's like okay let's get married right now did you notice something i thought was really funny which is the one line, despite this ostensibly being a comedy, it was the only line that actually made me laugh out loud the whole movie, is after he after he comes down and she runs out to the, like, uh, you know, she runs out to the, the um, landing pad to, uh-huh. like, hug him and kiss him. And so they, like, reunite in an embrace. 
And then he sees her wearing the showgirl outfit that she was like in disguise in. And he just goes, did you get a job here? (laughs) (laughs) It was such a weird aside. Yeah, I liked that too. Like that's the first thing he says to her after after he like chases her halfway across the country. And then, you know what I mean? Again, how much time has passed? Like, has... (laughs) Did you get a job here? (laughs) As a showgirl. I love to, I mean, talk about like flimsy, like devices to like, just put the pieces in place where Andrew Bergman wants them. It's like, she has to get out of, uh, she has to sneak out of this hotel. Um, so she has to put on the most revealing thing possible. Like it's not, (laughs) it, it doesn't cover her up at all. (laughs) It just exposes more of her. In fact, it makes her stick out more. Yeah. She's like, it's like glittery with like a huge, like plume yeah plumage hat thing calls so much attention to her that she becomes invisible i guess um that's just vegas for you you know oh and yeah yeah totally sin city blend in with the lights i guess did you notice the doobie brothers were in lights okay in in the first montage in the first montage (laughs) i didn't (laughs) i don't know why i picked up on this in the first montage when they're flying into vegas um, and they do like the obligatory, you know, like, yeah. like overhead helicopter, like camera sweep over the right. city. There's a, there's like a marquee of some <laughs> hotel and like big flashing lights. It just says the Doobie, Doobie Brothers. Brothers. Like, wow, really is glamorous there. James Conn offers her a million dollars to marry him and not even like, it seems like no strings attached in terms of like she could take the money and break up with him. Like, I, I mean, th- this is kind of like a classic, like, you know, where, where, where are your priorities? Like if some greasy gross old man who was very nice offered you a million dollars to marry him and then do whatever you wanted with it and the money in your life, like, would you do it? It's kind of like, I don't know. I, uh, I appreciate the moral decision that she made, but it's not a bad deal. But again, I don't know why she made that decision. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know why she made any decisions. What's her fucking deal? That's that was my note. What is her deal? <laughs> um, e, those flying Elvises were cool. Their skydiving outfits were cool. Ten thousand dollars, and Nick Cage apparently gets to keep his light up flying Elvis outfit, um, which was nice. Um, he even got like, he even got announced to everyone on the street of, you know, the Elvises are coming down and it's like, here comes so-and-so the head of the plane and the newest edition. They just knew who he was. They just knew. Yeah. Like, did he, they send that information ahead of them? Yeah. <laughs> they were like, Hey, heads up. We got this new guy. New guy. He's going to jump with us. Um, I, I also liked, uh, whoever the, the main flying Elvis was, he, he gives a, <laughs> he, he gives a quote. Nick Cage is like, are these parachutes foolproof or whatever? He says, just like Elvis said, there ain't nothing in this world that's foolproof except Coupe de Vils and hookers. <laughs> Which I, I'll have, you know, I researched it and Elvis did not say that, that it's not. And I, I also researched it. And found out that that makes no sense. I mean, are Coupe de Ville supposed to be really like reliable? Yeah. Foolproof? 
what's foolproof about a prostitute too? Like, why, like that it, it's such like a lazy, but again, like, again, like Elvis belongs to everybody. Like you can, you can say that and sure, you know, just sure. Maybe he said that he liked cars and women. Well, again, you know, people project so many things. I mean, people attribute things to, to Jesus Yeah, that I'm sure he never said any of it. Sure. But in the same way, it's more about the idea. Yeah, it's about our experience with Elvis now. And uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that, that line that the main flying Elvis said, as coming from the actual Elvis, is sort of like a, a parable in a way. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> children. Listen, listen to me. There, there ain't nothing in this world that's foolproof except Coupe de Ville's and hookers. Amen. Oh, the soundtrack. The soundtrack kind of pained me. It was really bad. It was a bunch of like middling overproduced covers of Elvis songs. Yeah. And then maybe three or four actual Elvis songs, but like not the good versions of them. No. They were like the they were like the the bad, which maybe is more fitting, but they were like the bad <laughs> later uh cheese ball versions. Uh, it really is uh probably more fitting. Um except for uh it's now or never, which plays at the end. And I will say the very last shot, the shot as the credits are rolling of Nick Cage in the Elvis outfit and Sarah Jessica Parker in the showgirls outfit with all the Elvis impersonators as their witnesses to getting married. Like they're standing at the altar. I, that was kind of surreal and beautiful in a way um, that, uh, that I appreciated. Is it ever appropriate to have a bridal party of Elvis impersonators if you're not getting married in Vegas? I I think the, the conclusion that we're coming to tonight is that it should be. Yeah, I agree. I really do. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's time for all Elvis impersonators to just be proud and, and come out of the closet, come out of the rhinestone closet. Um, on that soundtrack though, I guess the, the studio, released the soundtrack like weeks before the movie was released to drum up excitement. And, uh, it's all Elvis covers featuring like heartbreak hotel by Billy Joel, uh, suspicious minds by Dwight Yoakam Bono doing can't help falling in love. Was that Bono? Yeah. Oh my God. That was a horrible version. I I didn't know it was Bono when I was watching, but I remember thinking when that song played, I was like, who, yeah. Like, where did this version come from? Jeff Beck, John Mellencamp, Vince Gill. It's it's rough. Brian Ferry doing Are You Lonesome Tonight, which I don't remember from the movie, but I'll, I'll support that. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. that, And all with, like, the that, like, shiny, crappy uh, early 90s production of, like... It just sounds this thing that they did in that time period where it was just like, let's just remaster everything so that it sounds like it sounds like the reflection on like a plastic mirror. I don't know how to like it. Just everything sounds everything sounded like what the underside of a CD looks like. Looks like exactly. If that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Makes sense to you and me. Um, and we're the only ones that matter, Dave. No one else is listening anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who's who's going to tell us no? If you want to tell us no, um, heatseekingpanther at gmail.com or uh, at heatseekingpanther on Instagram.
tell us what early nineties production sounded like to you. All right. Well, I, the, the last things I want to touch on is, um, okay. Some anecdotes from, from the book, uh, Nick cage staying in Vegas drove him kind of crazy. And, uh, he started gambling a, a bunch. Surprise, surprise. He lost like $10,000 on one night. And, uh, then no, 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 I'm good for it. I promise. <laughs> Listen, I have an octopus. Yeah. You can have. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you trust anyone with a, a lizard with a top hat tattoo, uh, <laughs> to be frugal with their money? Benito, bring this man cool. <laughs> I don't know why his like weird manservant but, page boy is named Benito, Benito but, but somehow is. that's appropriate. Benito, bring, bring cool from the urinal. He, <laughs> he's in the men's room. <laughs> um, he, he and Sarah Jessica Parker had a flirtation kind of maybe romance on set. Um, apparently she was dating um, JFK Jr. And wanted to make him jealous. So, um, yo, why are you trying to make JFK Jr. Jealous? Hasn't that family been through enough? Honeymoon in Vegas is the first of what Nick would later call his, quote, sunshine trilogy. He was inspired to turn to comedy in part by his maternal grandmother, Louise Vogelsang, who saw him in Zandali and asked, Nicky, why don't you make something that me and my friends can go to and laugh? Louise, you, I, if you weren't laughing at Zandali, I, I don't, you must be dead already. Because uh, that, that's the greatest comedy that Nick has made so far. Um, so he made this movie for his grandmother. What does he say? Uh, my grandmother told me I needed to do a romantic comedy and not play a crazy man for a change. Normally, if someone told me that, I'd have said, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. But it was my grandmother. And I thought about it and I realized he was right. His other influence was very different. Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, who died of heart failure in a path in 1971. Nick said, I remember I saw Jim Morrison in an old TV interview once, and he was really drugged up on something. And he said, I haven't done a song yet that conveyed pure happiness. And I looked at him and I thought, you know what? You are great, but you hadn't done that. And you could be really pretentious. And then I thought, am I being pretentious? I knew I could be funny, but I didn't want to be funny. I wanted to be James Dean. That's like the college guy that gets too high <laughs> and then and then listens to the doors <laughs> and then like hangs a poster of Jim Morrison on his like dorm room wall. Just stares at it. No, you know, like there was yeah. there, like there was always that one dude in college that just thought like like Jim Morrison was just the the most the smartest voice in rock and roll sure yeah the the realist yeah i i mean and i love that as like a dark night of the soul for nick cage just uh <laughs> watching jim morrison and being like i want to be jim morrison but wait am i too much jim morrison dude they should have man fuck val kilmer nicholas cage should have played oh, uh jim morrison shit. in the doors movie yeah he didn't have the look but he could have done it he, he, so good. Yeah, he could have knocked it out of the park. Weird aside, around this time, uh, after Wild at Heart, uh, Elia Kazan approached Nick Cage to star in a remake of um, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. 
um, and which is a really great Italian crime movie. I mean, it's basically Bad Lieutenant, actually. <laughs> um, but um, so, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But that's a thing that almost happened, um, and would have been fucking amazing. Oh, and lastly, about this movie, it was a big success in terms of money. Like he made money, and everyone made money. It was like pretty film opened number one at the American box office, taking a respectable $7.3 million over its first weekend and pulling in 20 million, uh, pulling in the 20 million it cost to make by the middle of September chat show host Jay Leno took out full page advert in daily variety, congratulating the film, unfortunately misspelling Nick's name as Nicholas with an H <laughs> the, here's, here's a critical review from the time. Honeymoon in Vegas is a virtually nonstop scream of benign delirium. <laughs> this is the New York Times. Um, and this is a positive review, by the way. Honeymoon in Vegas is a virtually nonstop scream of benign delirium pop entertainment as revivifying as anything you're likely to see this year. So uh, it seems about right. I don't know if it was a scream. But Benign Delirium, it most certainly was. It was pretty delirious. Yeah. So uh, for next time, I think I, I texted you that Nick Cage was on an episode of Saturday Night Live. Does that come up next? Yeah, I don't know. Do you think we should watch it? Yeah, let's watch it. Might as well. Great. We I, could just tack it on to the end of whatever the next movie is. Yeah, I already downloaded it. So Great. I'm, I, I knew you'd say yes. I mean, there's no reason not to. Like, sure. there's not any other point in my life where I'm going to ever watch that episode of Saturday Night Live. So True. it might as well be now. Yeah. Uh, and watching old Saturday Night Live episodes is always, uh, I don't know, an, an enlightening experience in some way. Um, what's next? On, is it Amos and, A- Amos and Andrew? Really? Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, I know. From from the trailer that I watched, that one I feel like is going to be a slog. Ugh, I I don't know anything about it except Samuel L. Jackson's in it, but uh, it's the second part of the Sunshine trilogy. So, you know, what's the oh is the third part? It happened one night. Well, after that, he made Red Rock West and Deadfall. So I don't know. Oh, okay. It, it could be guarding. So it actually gets kind of good. Yeah. Again. And, but then he did guarding tests and it could happen to you and trapped in paradise. So I don't know which of those is the other part of the sunshine trilogy, but God, I wish he would just be consistent. I, <laughs> oh my God. I wish he could just be consistent. Why does he have to do one bullshit like rom-com you know. fluff piece and then do some crazy psycho independent movie the, the, so that we ha- like, can't we just watch, I guess I shouldn't be complaining because there is going to be a sharp drop-off point shortly after The Family True. Man. Yeah. Where it really, there is, it's just bad fluff piece after bad fluff piece. So I guess I shouldn't be complaining yet. But, but this, is, yeah, I mean, this is just the rocky road that we've chosen. We, um, you know. The thing uh, is, Dave, we're really, we really are falling on our own swords. Like we have, <laughs> we have no one to blame but ourselves. True. I can't blame Nick. We can really take full responsibility for our actions. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, there's, I there, there's something that makes it almost, um, uh, tragically noble about it. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, 
I'd say that uh, nobility is is um, the first quality that I describe to this podcast. Maximum violence immediately. Maximum violence immediately.